Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. It's an exciting time of the year for the NFL Draft in 2020. And without a doubt, people are going to be looking to get in on the action. And we have the best place for you to go. My bookie, if you're the kind of guy who likes to bet a little to win a lot, try a parlay. For instance, if you like a couple of the big favorites this week, parlays are perfect because they let you bet multiple games together for a much bigger payout. My bookie has more lines and better odds than the player than any other sports book around. And if you join right now, my bookie will match your deposit halfway all the way up to $1,000. That means if you deposit two grand, you'll get an extra grand and free money to play with. All you have to do is use our promo code BLV, that's capital BLV, to activate the offer. Once again, that promo code is capital BLV to get your extra cash from my bookie. Bet, win, get paid, my bookie. Today is April 27th, 2020. It's a Monday. We're still stuck. We're going to talk a little bit of rock and roll today. And since there are no concerts going on, obviously, I mean, there's all these stay-at-home concerts. Obviously, Dave Matthews has done it, Darius Rucker, uh, even Stevie Nicks is doing it. Uh, so today, uh, since obviously all we could do is watch stuff on television, I've been watching a lot of Netflix, I saw Tiger King, saw uh, Ozark, we'll get to those shortly. We, we're going to have Gary Sheffield Jr. to talk about some of those Netflix shows uh, later on in the week, possibly next week. Uh, but today, I want to jump back in my time machine and go all the way back to 2013, where uh, Food Fighters frontman Dave Grohl produced his first Ever film. It was a documentary about Sound City Studios in uh, Los Angeles, California. Uh, and of course, there's many, many, many talented musicians who, of course, recorded at Sound City Studios, most notably uh, the Nevermind album for Nirvana with Kurt Cobain, Chris Novoselic, and of course, Dave Grohl himself. Stevie Nicks, of course, uh, with Lindsey Buckingham. I mean, Fleetwood Mac, I think, was probably the first huge band that ever recorded there. Neil Young, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Trent Reznor. I mean, among they're among many artists and uh, producers, even reflecting on the contribution in this uh, documentary uh, to American music of the, the Van Noy studio uh, in this Dave Grohl uh, very impassionate tribute. Uh, and of course, if you're a first-time filmmaker uh, celebrating the legacy of this legendary recording studio, it probably helps in terms of I'd say interview access and music rights to be a member of Nirvana and Foo Fighters. But, you know, Dave Grohl has more than uh, just that in his corner in this very, again, very entertaining documentary called Sound City Real to Real, basically bringing Sound City Studios, which was put out of business in 2011 because, you know, just digitally there was SoundCloud, there was... Um, a garage band, like obviously digital music, you can just make it on your laptop these days. You don't need actual, you don't need the tapes. So Dave Grohl uh, wanted to bring this back. It was put out of business in 2011, of course. He, he took the soundboard, the Neve soundboard that they had in Sound City Studios, a very rare soundboard that, uh, of course, has turned uh, the likes of Nirvana into what they are today, obviously what they were th then back in 1991, the Nevermind album. But Dave Grohl here brings it back. He has it in his studio in uh, Los Angeles Studio. 66, the Foo Fighters Studios, Dave Grohl Studios. Um, so let's get in to what this documentary was all about. Again, the likes of Stevie Nicks, Fleetwood Mac, uh, uh, Rick, Rick frickin' Springfield is in this. So let, let's get into this here on episode 186 presented by Belly Up Sports. If you don't follow Belly Up Sports on Twitter already, go follow them, please, at Belly Up Sports. And if you're into buying tickets, I know you can't buy anything right now, but in a few months, when you can buy tickets again, hopefully in a few months, head on over to TickPick.com by using the promo code OSHOW10, that's capital O-S-H-O-W-10, for $10 off your next order using 
tick pick. And if you're into banging weights, eating steaks, and sleeping eights, I just got my Redcon 1 MRE meal replacement supplements from Mecca Nutrition. Use the promo code OSHO20. That's capital O-S-H-O-W-20 for $20 off your next door. Remember, small is the goal. Size is the prize. Sound City Studios. Let's go. If you're a first-time filmmaker, kind of just you know celebrating the legacy of Sound City Studios here, it, again for Dave Grohl, it definitely helps in the terms of, of course, interview access with rock stars, and then the music rights, of course, to be a member of both. Nirvana, who's already in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and then the Foo Fighters, who are going to be inducted this year or the next. I think this year is their 25-year anniversary. They started in 97. I know Dave Grohl started by himself in 97, recorded that first Foo Fighters album by himself, uh, did all all the instruments for that album. Uh, but Dave Grohl, again, yeah, he has more in his corner here in this Sound City Studios documentary. He brings elements that can't be faked. I mean, passion and heart, I mean, that's what Grohl brings. That's why he's probably one of the most favorite rock and roll stars of this generation. Uh, brings a lot of passion and heart to this, uh, again, just lovingly uh, documentary that, I mean, it feels like a real handcrafted um, uh, rock documentary. I mean, it, it came out in February of 2013, so it's been out for seven years. You can watch it on YouTube as well as Netflix still. Um, and, of course, this film at the time served as kind of like a sampler for the up-and-coming uh, Foo Fighters album, Sonic Highways, that came out in 2014. So Sound City Studios, again, uh, uh, Van Nuys, California, just outside Los Angeles. It, it was a dump. I mean, that, that's a basic, easy way to put it. It was a dump of a place. It opened in 1969 in the San Fernando Valley area. I mean, Sound City... It was a squat. I mean, ugly building, shag carpeting on the walls. This is the way they describe it in the documentary. I don't want to seem like I'm just poo-pooing all over this studio, but that's what they say in the documentary. Um, again, shag carpeting on the walls, furniture that you might think twice about sitting on. It just smells like cat piss. And uh, But... The business partners behind the studio, uh, I think it was Tom Skeeter, who, of course, is still alive, Joe Gottfried, who uh, died uh, back in 1992, right after that Nevermind album came out from Nirvana. I mean, they, they were savvy businessmen who uh, were about foregoing relationships with their artists. I mean, two breakout albums in particular, uh, like I mentioned, lured a slew of major music Figures to record at Sound City Studios. I mean, of course, the main body of Dave Grohl's film spans the distance, uh, you know, like the distant peaks of those game-changing albums. I mean, the infamous 1975 Fleetwood Mac album, like we were talking about, and then Nirvana's landmark in 1991 of Nevermind. I mean, the earlier record marked the uh, entry of uh, Stevie Nicks to the Fleetwood Mac album. Of course, Nicks and Buckingham, uh, Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham, a couple at the time, were the first to ever record at Sound City Studios. Um, and, and this marked the entry of those two into the lineup of what was, until then, a, a blues band, I guess you could say, blues bass band, headed by Mick Fleetwood. And the albums, of course, 
massive success here spawned a, a, a sustained wave of recording artists drawn by, of course, the wide open sound of the studio. I mean, I, I think they said that there was a sweet spot for the drums, a sweet spot uh, drum acoustic, uh, and, and the magic, of course, the Neve console. I mean, they praised this console throughout this entire documentary. I mean, the magic of the Neve console mixing desk. I mean, one, one of only a handful like it in the world. I mean, it's rare, and cust- it was custom built in England, they said. The, the, the tank-like console, it cost $76,000 to build and make, double of what Tom Skeeter at the time paid for his house. And uh, I think it was Keith Olson, who was a resident engineer turned producer, he called it the facilitator. While, of course, Neil Young, who recorded uh, much of his, one of his best albums, I'd say, after the Gold Rush at Sound City Studios, he even described it as mathematically crisp. So given the widespread, you know, grieving for analog integrity here in, in the process digital age, it's kind of touching to see producers and musicians from across decades and, and genres kind of uh, just showing so much respect to this beast-like uh, desk. I mean, it, it's a holy altar, basically. And, and the artists that followed Fleetwood Mac to Sound City included Santana, The Grateful Dead, uh, Foreigner, Cheap Trick, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, um, REM. I mean, Dave Grohl clearly develops, uh, of course, a relaxed um, um, rap report here with his interview subjects, you know, engaging in reflections uh, about Tom Petty and Stevie Nicks, among, among many others. I mean, Rick Springfield reminisces about recording Jesse's Girl there, but also opens up and gets, I mean, quietly emotional. Uh, acknowledging his poor treatment of his mentor at the time, uh, uh, Joe Gottfried, who, of course, uh, died. I think Rick said that they had made up before he had died in 1992, but, of course, was still emotional about that. was emotional about the board itself. I mean, there's a ton of history here that will, uh, I mean, it's going to be catnip to, to baby boomer music fans, but as well as those of the generation or two that are going to follow it. But the wealth of, of choice... Um, the archive footage and photographic material is slickly uh, put together here by, I think, Paul Crowder put this together as the editor of this documentary. And and the influence of 80s uh, rock and hair bands kept Sound City kicking here, of course. I mean, along with punk outfits like Leaving's Fear Band. But, but of, of course, the, the evolution of digital recording made the tape-based studio a dinosaur at the end of the day. I mean, and the, the business was gasping for air when uh, when the virtually unknown members of Nirvana at the time drove down from Washington State in a van, as Dave Grohl uh, uh, described it. I mean, it was a journey recreated by Dave Grohl at the start of the film, and they spent 16 days there recording the, the album that basically gave them their launching pad, Nevermind. And while this allowed Dave Grohl to position himself squarely within the, the studio's history, I mean... The I was there element never really risks turning this into a vanity project. I mean, his respect and appreciation for the artists, the engineers, the producers, and basically everyone else who worked in those shabby rooms of Sound City Studios makes this a sincere tribute, but also an infectiously inclusive one. I mean, the wildly 
influential success of Nevermind gave the gave Sound City Studios a second win, basically. I mean, with bands like Rage Against the Machine coming in, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Nine Inch Nails, Queens of the Stone Age. I mean, they all continued the, the mini rebellion against the Pro Tools revolution. I mean, during the same period, Johnny Cash also even made an appearance. He also made his uh, Unchained album there with producer Rick Rubin. So there's considerable discussion, led by Dave Grohl, of course, uh, of how digital recording sacrifices the the vital human element of analog here and making music, or put more abstractly, the quote-unquote feel of music. And his account of the way that uh, recording imperfections contributed to the the bracing textures of Nevermind support that charge. And Nirvana fans, of course, are going to eat up the footage and interviews dealing with the making uh, of that classic with particular attention paid to how the tracks of course lithium and something in the way came together as well as smells like teen spirit and and the inevitable end of sound city studios in 2011 when it was no longer able to compete with of course the ease and the cost effectiveness of digital programming it, it saluted with genuine emotion i mean in one of countless impeccable music choices on what is obviously a treasure trove uh, uh soundtrack the studio's demise is beautifully underscored by by Young singing uh, the broken refrain, it's over, in, in Birds. And while the view here is definitely a biased one, rather rather than letting the film become simply a nostalgic act or a eulogy for pre-digital rock, Dave Grohl includes a mention or two of, of the positives of the 21st century music technology because he basically bashed on uh, digital programming for 45 minutes in this film. And the most articulate defender of its precision, though, and, and creative potential is Trent Reznor, though he, he kind of concedes that laptop musicians who never do real studio time are, are, are missing out on something essential here because others are less charitable, saying that Pro Tools and Auto-Tune have kind of enabled people with no business being in the music industry to become stars. And, and the film begins to feel a tad overlong in, in the closing half hour, which is kind of devoted to the recording of new material on the Neve console, which was, of course, purchased by Dave Grohl and reassembled in his own Studio 66 in Los Angeles. But, but of course, the reappearances of Stevie Nicks, Rick Springfield, and even Lee Ving, I, I mean, it yields some great stuff. I mean, even better is the unexpected raw energy generated by putting Dave Grohl, Chris Novoselic, and Pat Smear together in a room as Nirvana with none other than Paul McCartney at the very end. I mean, their song cut me some slack. If you haven't heard it, it's it's gold. And about, I want to say, halfway during the time that elapsed between Kurt Cobain's suicide and the release of the first Foo Fighters album, Dave Grohl made his uh, first public, I guess you could say post-Nirvana uh, appearance on Saturday Night Live with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. He was, uh, of course, on the drum kit. He was drumming for them for uh, a, a couple of weeks. Um, and, uh, I mean, if, it, if it's no surprise here, the cameo provided a little indication of Dave Grohl's kind of imminent future as uh, the guitar-slinging, camera-ready leader of uh, the, the last arena rock band that was left standing. And it was, it was kind of uh, the, the bridge here of another role that he would grow to relish over the next two decades with the Foo Fighters. Um, and that's also his kind of duty to be that gatekeeper of sorts 
uh, to keep classic rock alive and keep that classic rock tradition going. I mean, Dave Grohl is essentially the middleman who helps, uh, I guess you'd say, like the geezers, the, the old rockers look cooler to the kids these days. And he's got that open door policy for Rock and Roll Hall of Famers to join him on stage at any time. He's got enough charm and charisma to, to uh, uh, get the, the most reclusive um, living member of Led Zeppelin out of semi-retirement. And he's, and he's always on hand to help Grammy Award producers to kind of mitigate the uh, encroaching influence of EDM. And this sort of, of cross-generational appeal has made Dave Grohl not just the nicest man in rock and roll, but its employee of the month for nearly 20 years running now. And no doubt, he, he's probably the only person who could have made Sound City happen, this documentary. I mean, Dave Grohl's uh, directorial uh, debut pays tribute to, again, the, the legendary and recently uh, shuttered L.A. studio that, again, produced Fleetwood Mac's 1975 album, uh, uh, Tom Petty's Damn the Torpedoes, and, and what seems like every other album in perpetual classic rock radio rotation here, not, not to mention alternative rock like uh, Rage Against the Machine's debut, uh, Weezer's album Pinkerton, and, of course, Nirvana's Nevermind, but... Um, but if the main message for this film is a certain they don't make them like they used to, nostalgia, I mean, it's accompanying soundtrack release uh, also documented on screen. It's, it's, it's a noble attempt to put the lie to that sentiment. Like Having purchased the facilities, uh, of course, the All Hail, the Magic Neve console, the Hollowed Neve, uh, I think it was like 8028 board, and install, he installed it in his own uh, 606 studios. Uh, so the Foo Fighters uh, use it. I mean, the Foo Fighters frontman used it uh, in his documentary, of course, as uh, an association to gather various famed Sound City alumni together to create this new uh, soundtrack using an old school tool. So, but, you know, however, you know, just being friends with Dave Grohl is not the most coherent, unifying principle for a standalone album, given that his friends here include everyone from Stevie Nicks to Corey Taylor of Slipknot. And a mutual admiration for a bygone recording studio doesn't really provide much of a conceptual uh, conceit to build a, a record around it. So Dave Grohl naturally sounds the most invested in the cause. I mean, his epic showdown with Trent Reznor and uh, Josh Holm on Mantra, it climaxes with kind of a rallying cry here and all that this will never be the same that essentially reads as uh, an, an indictment against the technological and economic shifts that drove the studio out of business in the first place. But other artists like Black Rebel Motorcycle Dudes on Heaven and All simply show up as if they were cutting their own album, basically. I mean, w with its hit-and-miss deviations in tone and quality, uh, this documentary, at least the soundtrack, feels less like a tribute to a studio that created some of the greatest albums of all time and more like an approximation of a typical active rock radio playlist. But the album works best when it, it's embracing the sheer absurdity of its kind of uh, ad hoc supergroup combinations. I mean, back in 1981, Rick Springfield, who's in this, and then Lee Ving, of course, lead singer of Fear, an L.A. hardcore band. I mean, they represented the polar opposites, you can say, of the ideal rock frontman. I mean, here we find them on back-to-back -back tracks leading various Foo Fighters um, with equal amounts of bravado and self-deprecation. I mean, Rick Springfield's the man that never was on this album it kind of makes for a cheeky comment on his own faded celebrity while leaving's uh, berserker turn, your wife is calling, feeds on kind of the neurosis of domesticated aging punk. But but the 62-year-old, I think I think Lee Ving's 62, is 
Um, neither the oldest nor most impetuous guest on hand here. I mean, after making its uh, surprise debut um, in uh, December uh, during the Hurricane Sandy tribute, Paul McCartney, and that was back in 2012, Paul McCartney's uh, cut me some slack on this album with Taylor Hawkins, or no, I think it's, uh, it's Chris Novoselic and Dave Grohl, so it's basically Paul McCartney with Nirvana. Um, yeah, I mean, former Beatle backed by the surviving members of Nirvana. I mean, it still excites with kind of like its helter-skelter, scaled, bombast, horse-throat howls, you know, and, and fierce double-timed outro at the beginning. It's the best representation of Dave Grohl's intent for his Sound City mission to recapture some of the raw, spontaneous moments that have been lost in an era where so many recordings and are, are just clicked and cut with just clinical precision. I mean, it's too bad that many of the other collaborations here feel as generic and laborious, you could say, as Pro Tools tutorial. I mean, Dave Grohl, uh, I think it was Masters of Reality's Chris Goss and half of Rage Against the Machine, they teamed up for time slowing down on this album, which comes off like a rejected uh, STP audition, Stone Temple Pilots for the Crow soundtrack. Um, from Can to Can't, meanwhile, this is with Corey Taylor, it basically squanders the power of Pop Chops of Scott Reeder on kind of a plotting post-grunge power ballad with uh, clenched neck earnedness by Corey Taylor. I mean, but, but it's the date with Stevie Nicks that feels like Real to Real's biggest misopportunity. Uh, you Can't Fix This, which is on the album. It, it's a forced attempt to kind of update the witchy woman archetype, but, it, but it's a heavy-handed lyric about dancing with devils, mysticism for melodrama, and, and yet, even Real to Real's, I mean, their failures here are a testament to the greatness of Sound City Studios. In that, they prove it, it takes more than the right equipment, the right people, and good intentions to recreate the magic of once was. But still, it's a rockin' album. I think, like, Dave Grohl's main goal here was, of course, to honor the magic of the, the Neve console, that soundboard, and its energized collection of songs. But it's clear that the magic of these songs is the people and the inspiration that comes from working with those gifted and talented musicians, gifted friends and colleagues. I mean, and I guess the musical landscape, it's unlikely that this collection of songs on the soundtrack will come to represent a widespread cultural moment or generate sales as significant as the, the hit records that lined the wall of Sound City Studios back in the day. But it's definitely an example, you know, of the joy and craftsmanship uh, of rock and roll. I mean, you'll find no better album uh, uh, than this one, and it took me seven years to find it. And Dave Grohl, of course, hasn't aged a bit. I think he was a guest on the latest edition, the latest remote edition, I guess you'd say, of Jimmy Kimmel Live. And he actually appeared during an interview with T.J. Riley, who is a New York emergency trauma nurse from Jacoby Medical Center in the Bronx, who just so happens to be the biggest Foo Fighters fan of all time. And Dave Grohl popped up on his screen. He sang uh, Everlong for him um, with his acoustic guitar. And the performance here, of course, was a gesture thanks uh, and a thanks to Riley for his work during the COVID-19 pandemic, because obviously being a trauma nurse in the Bronx, I mean, that's just got to be the most hectic experience of all time. I mean, I, I can't speak from experience. And the, and the Life is, uh, I think it's called the Life is Good organization, also provided every nurse in T.J. Riley's department with a $10,000 um, gift package. And, and, and the segment was a part of Jimmy Kimmel's hashtag 
Healthcare Hero Series. So Dave Grohl's appearances on uh, Jimmy Kimmel have a tendency to be memorable here, I guess you could say, but at least for the ones I've seen on YouTube. I mean, one time in 2017, he donned a wig, uh, fake beard on Halloween, and false gap teeth to host the show as David Letterman. And recently, in an all-star cover of Foo Fighters' Times Like These, I think it was Dua Lipa and uh, Chris Martin of Coldplay, uh, they released a, a, a song that was released for charity, too, on Jimmy Kimmel Live. So uh, uh, Dave Grohl, just what a guy. Standout guy. One in a million. He even just played at Prince's tribute show uh, four years later, of course, after the death of Prince. And Dave Grohl, he's been, he's been willing away. He's been writing away uh, in his time in self-quarantine by... Uh, penning his true short stories on his uh, new Instagram account, at Dave's True Stories, and thus far, he, he shared uh, a lot of great stories, a lot of weird, embarrassing stories about uh, Fourth of July fireworks gone wrong, uh, hanging with Pantera at their strip club in Dallas, Texas, uh, and of course, Dave Grohl's latest tale kind of reveals the um, kind of heartfelt story of his one and only jam session with the late Great Prince, and like so much classic writing, uh, the story begins at the end with Dave Grohl meeting Prince backstage during uh, his 21-night stand in the Los Angeles Forum in 2011. And Dave Grohl recalled being given a proposition that he wished that he had for his entire adult life, but never in his wildest, wildest dreams that, did he expect that it was ever going to happen, jam with Prince. And Dave Grohl compared it to dancing with Fred Estere, uh, uh, baking with Betty Crocker, uh, bong hits with Bob Marley, uh, but but the session w it wouldn't be for uh, another week. He said after the the shows at the forum, which left him seven whole days to uh, kind of stew that anxiety in his head. And Dave Grohl initially thought that he'd landed on uh, Prince, his kind of like his esteemed shit list after Foo Fighters released uh, "Darling Nikki" as kind of like the B side to uh, the Australian "Have It All" single. And Prince had apparently denied giving his blessing to the cover, saying they, they should write their own tunes. However, though, Dave Grohl's worries were wiped away when he received a call from his manager on February 1st of 2007 uh, when uh, they were telling him that Prince was going to play Best of You by the Foo Fighters at the Super Bowl halftime show. And Dave Grohl almost said that he wrote the whole thing off as something that was too good to be true. I mean, feeling that the Foo Fighters song would be the red-headed stepchild, in a way, placed between, of course, all along the Watchtower and Purple Rain at, at, the, at the end of Prince's legendary set. And Dave Grohl didn't even watch the broadcast live, instead waited um, until someone confirmed Prince really had played Best of You before watching it on his computer. And he said, as the tears hit the keyboard like the Miami Rain did that night, he realized that this was, without a doubt, his proudest musical achievement. He said that all of those years spent in his bedroom practicing alone to Beatles records, sleeping in cold, infested squats on winter fan tours across Europe, battering his drums until his hands literally bled. He said that it all paid off in that moment uh, when Prince played Best of You at the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 41 in Miami. And he was watching the greatest living performer known to man sing his song to 100 million people as if it were his own. And volumes have been written about that performance to this day, and it's truly one of the best halftime shows in history, um, at least to Dave Grohl. And he'll always remember it as one of his life's greatest accomplishments. And, of course, now four years later, he uh, rented a party bus packed with friends to catch one of Prince's shows. That was in 2011, of course, the halftime show in 2007. And a good friend of his, 
happened to be running security that night and told Dave Grohl, just like, kind of like, hey, he knows you're here. He wants to meet you. And unfortunately, Dave Grohl was preparing for kind of a different sort of epic night and was absolutely hammered, not sober, hammered. And there was absolutely no way that he was going to step onto Prince's stage in that state. He said, thank you. I'm beyond honored, but I'll, I'll see you after the show. And it was after the performance that he met Prince backstage and was told to come jam uh, like a week later, like the next Friday. Though Dave Grohl received no confirmation call or instructions, no text. He was waiting for Prince to text him. He's like, Prince is going to text. Prince is going to text. And he never texted. So Dave Grohl arrived at the LA Forum uh, the next week and was told to wait in a dressing room set aside just for him. So... Uh, too wound up to sit still. Dave Grohl, of course, found himself wandering to the stage to check his gear, was sitting in the middle of the forum, an empty forum, was just smack dab right in the middle of it. And then, uh, of course, just like the skit on SNL, uh, Prince appeared. And uh, Prince asked Dave what he was doing there. He's like, uh, you know, I thought we were going to jam. <laughs> just showed up in the middle of the forum, thought he was going to jam. And he, he asked if he could play some drums. So Dave Grohl climbed behind uh, the drums, um, I mean, he started playing, you know, just like simple stuff, simple grooves as the rest of the band came on stage and Prince watched. He inspected Dave Grohl with a grin and then the kid strapped on a bass and proceeded to decimate the whole damn thing with the smoothest, funkiest, fastest and most graceful playing that Dave Grohl has ever seen to this day. And Dave Grohl said he was on him like glue, like a fresh roll of Gorilla Tape, though there was not a soul in sight to witness it. It was a completely empty L.A. forum. Uh, when the whole band locked into the symphony of that of that song, but everyone cheered at the end, and Prince joked that Dave Grohl's got a heavy foot, and Prince then walked over to his uh, love symbol guitar and began playing the opening riff to Led Zeppelin's Whole Lot of Love, and Dave Grohl, who's a mega Led Zeppelin fan, um, he's got arms full of Zeppelin tattoos, was in absolute heaven. He's like, it, it fucking slammed. Uh, fat, funky, big-bottom swing that... As he let loose solos that would make your teeth curl. And he said that his rock and roll fantasy was absolutely coming true and he couldn't wait to share it with an arena packed full of diehard Prince fans like himself. But Prince, of course, suggested that Grohl return the following Friday again to play for the crowd. But for whatever reason, I think he had like a kid's, one of his kid's uh, school teacher meetings or something. Grohl wasn't able to make it and Grohl never did. And uh, he said in a strange way that he didn't need to do that with Prince. He had fulfilled his life dream uh, with no evidence of it to share with anybody other than a memory that he said that would last for him for, uh, forever and only saw Prince once after that before he died. He said we just smiled and said hello. And when he heard that he had passed, he sat in his car alone crying, feeling both blessed to have shared those moments with him and heartbroken that there would be no more. So there, there will never be another person like Prince and that they were lucky to have him while he did and that he misses him dearly. And of course, you could check that story out at Dave's True Stories uh, on Instagram. And again, this episode was presented by Belly Up Sports. Be sure to follow Belly Up Sports on Twitter at Belly Up Sports. This was episode 186, Sound City Studios, the resurrection, Dave Grohl's resurrection of Sound City Studios in his documentary, Real to Real. The soundtrack is available on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, wherever you listen to your music. We're also sponsored by TickPick.com. Use the promo code OSHOW10, that's capital O-S-H-O-W-10, for $10 off your next order using TickPick. And if you're into banging weights, eating steaks, and sleeping eights, head on over to MechaNutritionStore.com right now. Use the promo code OSHOW20, that's capital O-S-H-O-W-20, for $20 off your next order. Hit it, hoot. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.